Those flaming fish performance models, handmade miniature wooden sailing vessels, on the web at flamingfish.net, little ships for big kids. Support for Boat Talk also comes from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. That's our, our friend Schooner Fair right there piping in boat talk here. And uh, I would like to say uh, in the interest of a fair speech that Schooner Fair is going to be um, giving a concert on March 11th at 7.30 p.m. at the Rockland Strand down in Rockland. And uh, Schooner Fair is being featured every morning here on Morning Maine throughout the week. So uh, we'll be giving away uh, a CD of theirs every morning at Morning Maine. So that's a uh, little Schooner Fair connection right there with uh, those those guys. They're, they're, um, one of the credits I can see here says Schooner Fair is regarded as the premier performing group of original and traditional songs. This is a quote from the Lincoln Center in New York City. So that's a... Pretty good credit right there. Uh, Schooner Fair's brothers, uh, basically the duos, the brothers, Steve and Chuck Romanoff. Yep. Um, Chuck was an English teacher at the high school I went to. Oh, I didn't really? actually have Mr. Romanoff, but I knew, you know that's huh. how I know him. And years ago when we started Boat Talk, we used Lyle Lovett's If I Had a Boat for our theme song. We really liked that. Yep. And then when copyright issues came up uh, years ago, we had to shift and... How happy were we to be able to approach our friends and, and borrow their song? We edited it. They were glad to let us they have let it. Us, they were happy with the edit of the Penny Whistle, and uh, um, so Steve and Chuck, uh, Schooner Fair, couldn't we'll recommend We're going to be having an interview more. with Steve on Friday morning, morning, Maine, yeah. with Dennis Howard. They're Artists of the Week this week, and again, uh, uh, just two cool regular uh, fellas who sing incredibly well and are, are incredibly entertaining. Couldn't recommend them more. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, Boat Talk is the uh, call-in radio show for people contemplating things naval here on Community Radio WERU with your rusty anchors Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague. And I've just learned that Boat Talk has been voted the uh, program on WERU most likely to punt. We wait for the pun, and he hardly ever disappoints. I could tell you a... uh, I can't tell you my uh, favorite uh, punt uh, uh, story, so anyway. Uh, I'm sure it's dingy, whatever it is. Yes, it is, as a matter of fact. So, uh, yes, good one. Thank you so much. uh, We're glad to have uh, Steve Callahan again here with us, too. Welcome to Boat Talk, Steve. Thanks. Welcome back. Um, Speaking of dingy things, though, one thing that I always always thought curious with boat names are usually don't relate to anything else, but... The rope we use to pull dinghies behind our our bigger boats is called a painter. 
that makes absolutely no sense to me to call a, a rope a painter. Wonder what the connection is there. Just curious. I have just had to interface with some computer people. And when they speak to me, I often recognize English words, but not their meanings and their total sense, okay? And I look at this guy and I say, I'm a boat guy. I could talk to you and, and, uh, and use words that you would understand vaguely, but never really understand what I, you know, what I can do uh, scarfing a fuddock either. So there, you know. <laughs> and again, specialized trade language is kind of a, kind of a joy and makes us, uh, you know, a more secret impenetrable guild in our own heads. Than it's a good question, though. I mean, all, almost all these these words have roots that yeah. go back somewhere. So, yeah, what is the painter? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. How, how, how would the painter? Out? Yeah, how would that, that morph into a rope? Hasn't it? Is... International Marine down in Rockland done that book? I believe. No. Nautical terms. Be. Yeah, it could that be. should be one of those. Yeah, I've, out got, there. I've got some on my on my shelves of yeah nautical terms. And there is a reason, and and. Hey, it's a call-in show. I bet somebody besides these three ex experts, I use the word loosely sitting at the table here, except for Steve. Uh, uh, no, 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 we don't want to be experts. Well, uh, the telephone number this morning, though, uh, 1-800. Uh, it is 625-9378. I should say is 6 1-866-625-9378. When I started to say that, Alan, I realized that I always let you do that. Yeah, well, yeah. you face the number, <laughs> I and, face I it, don't, yeah. and I don't. So yeah, anyway. and you looked at two different numbers at the yes, same time. I did. So anyway, we are so lucky to have Steve Callahan here this morning. Steve, um, You're a cheap date. Uh, Steve's been a sailor um, a long time and, and had a little uh, survival experience uh, back in the early 80s that... Um, he wrote a uh, book called Adrift from his experience. It was New York Times bestseller. That set Steve up for a uh, little bit of a career as a Marine consultant in the movies, and we talked about that this morning. Got a couple other things to cover real quick, though, including the upcoming Maine Boat Builders show. That's right. Yes, we're going to be uh, calling Phineas Sprague, a major motivator of the Maine Boat Builders show down in Portland, in a few minutes, but um, that is going to be coming up. Um, I believe third weekend, uh, third 18th weekend to 19th, 20th, uh, yeah. yeah, that weekend there, and highly, highly recommend. We'll talk more about that in a minute. We talked uh, a boat talk or two ago about our friends over at uh, OffCenterHarbor.com, and they had a houseboat uh, designing contest. And in the Ellsworth American is a lovely example of one of the designs by uh, WERU's uh, volunteer Terry Mason. Did an arched roof uh, barge kind of affair that's very attractive here. And, again, uh, you know, you never know how these things bounce around. No, no. I thought it was kind of an interesting idea when they came up with having a houseboat contest because you don't really see very many houseboats around here. Uh, but they had a great response. I believe the uh, the selection process is still undergoing, but it would be interesting to uh, to see the winners. You priced out waterfront lately, Alan? Uh, <laughs> no. Compared to dockage or anchorage, uh, yeah. you know. But, uh, of course, as um, they say, there's uh, no free lunch either. So, again, uh, there's, yeah. there's no way to uh, steal that completely, but uh, you just shift the expenses basically is the way I look at it. Um, what else we got going on this morning? Uh, let's see here. Oh, um, pretty excited. We get um, stuff handed to us sometimes. And Amy Brown, WERU's uh, news manager, handed, handed us this. Greenpeace captain, my adventures in protecting the future of our planet, Peter Wilcox with uh, Ronald B. Weiss. 
Peter Wilcox married a lady named uh, Maggie Wilcox over on Alboro, and he lives over there now in his spare time of uh, um, sailing around the planet for Greenpeace. This book is just blowing me away. Brand new, uh, about to come out, Greenpeace Captain, and really looking forward to talking to Peter Wilcox in the upcoming, um, in the upcoming uh, soon future, we hope. Um, it's gotten me a lot to think not only about nautical things, but how you change, uh, affect change in this planet, whether it's civil rights or trying to uh, stop people from dumping nuclear waste in the ocean or, or doing all mm -hmm. kinds of the bad things that people will do left unsupervised. There's kind of a, a gray area that Greenpeace uh, seems to go in often as to uh, violence on the sea. And, uh, that was off-putting to me as well, but uh, I don't think uh, we're uh, looking at that quite right. We interviewed uh, years ago, didn't we interview um, Paul Watson from the Sea Shepherd? Yes. We yes. did. Paul Watson was uh, thrown out of Greenpeace for um, violating their principles. They are nonviolent. They don't hurt anything. They, they try to cause zero damage. They won't even snip barbed wire to get through a fence. Mm -hmm. Um, the biggest thing they did uh, in this book here, they put a crowbar through an anchor chain trying to prevent a destroyer from raising it through its windlass. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, our friend uh, Peter Wilcox was hanging under the bow on a steel hook surfing under this thing while they threatened to drop the anchor on him. And he tried to stop the boat with his body instead of his, bo his, his boat as uh, the other guy would have. And we need to talk to this guy. It's, the book is incredible. And uh, among other things, he describes... Uh, Steve might respond to this. Uh, Steve, you used a uh, phrase in your book, Adrift, uh, you consider being out to see your chapel. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the closest thing I have to a church is it's a cathedral. It's, I don't know, confronting the face of God, if you will, straight on. Um, I'd, I've never been much of a church goer, but um, I feel quite spiritual every time I go offshore, especially. I call it church, too. Uh, Peter Wilcox, I had to put this bo book down for a little while and think about this. He says, uh, what's heaven? He says, maybe it's reliving your favorite moment over and over. He says, I'm a professional mariner. That's defined as somebody that goes to seas. But he says, really, I'm a sailor. In my heart, I'm a sailor. And he says that moment, which is, again, more rare than you think when the motor gets shut off and the boat dips and, and the bow, uh, you know, makes its wave. And uh, that whoosh. He says, that's it for me right there, you know, his definition of heaven. Yeah. And, again, we need to talk to that fellow. So. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, find, I found uh, a number of people who, who um, regularly journey into wilderness environments, you know, guys who, uh, like, free climb El Capitan and people like that. And, and their senses about um, the wild and wilderness environments being kind of a, ch a chapel or a, a, a church is um, is quite similar, actually. I, I think a lot has to do with that um, immediacy, like when you're sailing along, you know, you know very well, you know, you get the boat really in sync with the wind and the waves, and it's you become a part of that continuum. And uh, same when you're climbing mountains or whatever, you're just so present right at that moment. Uh, it's a very special feeling. Every uh, was talking on the Barefoot Blues Hour last week, uh, or uh, Blues was last week, reading about Inuit who uh, never had alcohol in their culture, but mm -hmm. uh, an anthropologist friend of mine theorizes that all people like to get high and everybody uses <laughs> some kind of sub substance, but everybody, everybody has a God concept. Mm -hmm. Every everybody that's ever been on in that interesting, and, mm -hmm. and um, how could you evolve naturally on this planet and not be 
again, uh, who knows? As I like to joke, uh, raised Catholic. I don't think it's the gray-haired guy in, in, with the big finger on the cloud. Uh, that's not what I see anymore. But whatever it is, I'm in awe of it, you know. So, and you can't help uh, being out there in the big blue, as we call it, you know. I'm um, surprised uh, that it's still as positive as it is for you after after being adrift for what 73 76 76 days, 76 yeah. days. Um, uh, i don't know i mean you've gone through a lot through you've gone through a lot in your life i've gone through a lot in my life both you know then and the 34 yeah. years since and it's a matter one of thing attitude. one thing i've found is that um uh, despite difficulties in going through a rough time um there are also hidden gifts in it and what I saw even when I was in that situation way back then bobbing across the ocean um, yeah I suffered and whatnot but I also saw things that were very precious to me and there's no way you can experience those things unless you go through it um, mm -hmm. so you know it's Life's a mixed, well, a mixed right. bag, you know, a sort of yin yang balance and things to me, and you know, so I found that, you know, I've, I, uh, uh, like, like, like you, I've had experiences with, uh, with severe illness and whatnot too, and, um, you know, there, there are gifts buried and all yeah. that stuff. It's just a matter of being positive, really. I think too, mentally positive. The reason why I brought that up was I just recently read an interview of a. A Syrian refugee who was adrift uh, in the Mediterranean for quite a while, mm -hmm. and she now she cannot stand to look at any large body of water. At yeah. all. <laughs> she is so freaked out by that experience. Yeah, it's understandable, but uh, I don't know. Our backgrounds are probably a little different. I'm sure she, it wasn't her chosen domain. No, no. You know, she got kind of stuck there, yeah. and uh, whereas I chose to go yeah, you there did for that a to reason. Yourself, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I go back to my favorite little cartoon on my refrigerator, a peg-legged seaman with a young boy uh, sitting on his knee, and the, the old seaman says to the boy, son, it's your attitude that makes the difference between an ordeal and an adventure. Yeah. You know, yeah. And again, adventure uh, out of the ordeal is the best you can make of it. Um, phone just rang. Um, she, I believe we're calling up Phineas Spray. All right. Yep. Yep. Um, Stay in tune for that. And Steve, um, you're, you're, uh, we'll jump right... Uh, Jumping around a little bit here, we'll talk about this, of course, uh, after we talk to Phineas for a minute. Um, at the end of your book there, you, you uh, talk about how life is uh, uh, so great, but unless you share it. Yeah. You know, yeah. so what? And you've been lucky. Um, you you have a wonderful woman in your life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, life's ended up pretty good for you. Oh yeah, and, I can't. So I really. Ways, I, yeah. I, I I always say I, I I can't complain, but it doesn't stop me. Right now. <laughs> and uh, again, you uh, um, found it easier to keep trying than to quit. Yeah. But you also um, haven't had nightmares and PTSD or no. I think uh, actually I, ha I had kind of a, um, probably an opposite experience from uh, a lot of my uh, contemporaries who uh, went to Vietnam and came back and nobody wanted to talk to them about their experiences and whatnot. And there's there's some good evidence that there's um, uh, the change in. Um, in policy, in military policy from the Second World War through especially uh, into Vietnam made a big difference in PTSD because after the Second World War, 
guys normally stayed in the theater for a while, and then they were shipped back, literally shipped back to the States. And so they were a month or so together on ships, and then they went to depots, and, and they all got to kibitz with one another about their experiences. And not that there wasn't PTSD from the Second World War, but it seemed that the, the quicker we got it, pulling people from the field and flying them back home where they're surrounded by people whose lives have been totally different, the, 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 the more PTSD there, there's been. For me, you know, I got ashore and everybody, you know, piles of people wanted to talk to me right away and I was lonely and I was, you know, I'd kind of changed my perspective of humanity quite a bit in recognizing exactly what you said, that I, I needed people a lot more than I thought I did. And so I was given the opportunity to talk a lot about my experience. And then I was given, you know, basically the opportunity to write a book, whole book about it and yammer about a bunch more. So I, got, I think I got it all out of my system. I was able to, uh, the arts are very transformative in, in dealing with post-trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's chaotic uh, and um, yet you can make a story of it, if you will, if, uh, if you employ the arts to transform these chaotic, horrible experiences into something that have a bit of meaning to you. you uh, mm-hmm. I was impressed by the way you ended your uh, voyage, and you did a great uh, decompression at the end there and, and didn't do the typical survivor thing. You resisted uh, even going home with your parents on an airplane, for instance, and sailed yeah. off at your leisure, stuff like that. But we'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that. We do, yeah. So we have uh, Finn Sprague on the phone now to talk about the main Boat Builders show and, and more, too. Good morning, Finn. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning, and, and um, I, I, I am humbled, and I want to thank you for your service. Oh, well, we're, we're glad to do it. it uh, as, as Mike and I say, it's the, it's the golden key. We can talk to most anybody and go most anywhere. It's, it's a great position to be in. You know, uh, from my point of view, Finn, I'm sitting here with one of my sailing heroes this morning. How happy am I? Steve Callahan, you know. Um, it's, again, uh, great fun. And uh, So anyway, how are you doing this morning? We're, we're doing great. You know, uh, Portland Yacht Services has been through quite a transition over the last four or five years right. moving to our new facility up on uh, uh at, at 100 west commercial street and so uh life is life has been very interesting but the boat show is on and doing well it's uh 18th 19th and 20th um and and we've got uh uh you know we, we we've got uh you know sad times when they're going to be uh, rebuilding the place and and we're looking for another place to put the boat show um, we may have next year but but it's not clear where we're going to end up so pretty exciting uh people that want to come in and remember the beautiful sunlight in the on the boats and the varnish in building one that building has been approved by the city council to tear it down so here we go is that because it's old and funky finn no i you know the the reality is that that you got to move on, and and the building is is uh, economically unfeasible. Um, when I was running a boatyard there, um, I could just go empty the building out and invite my friends in for a boat show, and and uh, if nobody showed up, I would just not pay myself. But um, I sold a Porsche to those guys, and so the price of the property is is so high that that uh, you really can't afford to to. Uh, 
do the things that I was able to do. And it's sad, but it's it's part of the world changing. Well, let's put it this way. It's a, uh, a pretty damn funky place for a boat show venue. Oh, right? I'm going to miss it. Yeah, um, it's not like it's not like the uh, uh, Civic Center kind of boat show show uh, venue. And no. I captained for a fellow for uh, years who flew out from um, Santa Fe, every, never missed it. And, boy, he loved that thing so much. And, and part of it was the venue, let alone, yeah. as they say in the advertisement, it's, uh, you know, not, not your uh, average Tupperware party. You know, as, uh, no, as... in, in, in uh, you know, the boat show wouldn't be a boat show without the, 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 the incredible people that have made it so successful over 29 years. Um, you know, it's truly been a, um, you know, a labor of love for us at Portland Yacht Services because, the, um, because you know, who, we just were in a position to be able to clear out all of our customers and invite our friends in for uh, three days of finding out what's going on in the world and, and really concentrating on the boating industry that we love. And, you know, it's you know, I've I've been at this for a long time, and and uh, when I walk down the the aisles in the building, there are a, of um, course, wide variety of vendors at any boat show. A lot of boat shows have a lot of, uh, you know, modern production boats. The main boat builders show features actual main boat builders. Um, you've ruined my life a number of seasons trying to uh, get a boat done for the boat show. But what blew me away was not all the boats at the boat show are done. Um, oh, no, people will bring boats in progress. It's that honest, uh, you know, a reel of a place. Uh, Southport Marine's got one that's halfway done, and, and it's got, uh, you know, so it's in progress, and, and people will get to go take a look at it and see what that's about. That don't uh, ever see that in an average boat show. and yeah. boat this year. Yeah. Um, you know, the... Uh, um, I was, you know, I, I've got so many friends that, that have passed away. Hmm. And when I go by their spot. It's about people, isn't it, Finn? That's what you're saying, right? Sure is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, that's the treasure. And um, you can talk to anybody around a boat, can't you? Uh, let alone at the boat show. And, again, we're urging you to show up uh, third weekend of uh, March, the uh, main boat builder show, just an absolute classic. And, you know, uh, at least uh, once in your life, if you've never seen it, um, you know, you might owe yourself a trip through there. Yeah. Well, Giffy Full's going to be here. And I just it's talked with him. Honor. I just talked with Giffy uh, this morning. Park on Friday. Yeah. You know, we've got some great talk. Um, Brooklyn Boatyard is going to talk about their project. We've got early Friday morning, we've got, um, there's been a lot going on with the AIS system and personal safety gear. Mm. And everybody ought to, who's a boater ought to understand that now they have personal AIS, that if you fall overboard, the boat can go back to you. You don't have to wait for the, uh, the satellite to pick you up and, and the Coast Guard plane to come over. So, Jeez. you know, by that time you're, you're about done. So, the personal AIS is a really big deal. Um, uh, so the you know so there's a lot of information to be um, to be learned. Um, Harold Burnham's going to be here talking about the Ernestina that's being or the um, at Booth Bay Harbor Shipyard 
and that'll you know that's the kind of information that uh, people just love to hear and yeah. to be part of and, and know about. Lovely. And once again, the dates of that, Finn, and time That's time the, of day uh, to show 18th, up. 19th and 20th. Yeah. Very and good. we hope to see our friends there. Yes. Uh, about a, a year ago, Finn, we talked with some people who were uh, farmers in Maine who were getting together an order that they were going to ship on the on Harvey Gamage down to Boston. And, uh, oh, boy, this, yep. This the Greenhorns. Yes. Yeah, the Greenhorns. Right. Yep. Um, this was before they left. Uh, never really did a follow-up on uh, how that went. but uh, Well, it didn't go too well because you know. we were doing the rebuild on the uh, Harvey Gamage, and um, we had an optimistic estimate of when we were going to get it done, and every time we came to a new new plank, it, uh, we had to pull it out and, and, uh, and do the job right. So uh, we had to turn that over to another boat to take that that to Portland, to, from Portland to uh, Boston. And I, I understand that um, they're still doing these kind of things, and 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 it's kind of a fun uh, way to get their message out. Yeah, I love you. Still, is now in Cuba. Yes, I heard the damage now it oh, doesn't awesome. leak in the bow where it had been leaking for years and years and years. Well, we, we, there's a new bow. Yeah. <laughs> and you you still do boat repair optimistically. How about that? Well, we, we um, uh, being a sailor, I appreciate the fact that the guy that's working on the boat's asleep and is dead safely at home. When all hell's breaking loose at sea. Yeah, yeah. We've been uh, speaking to Andros, Andros Kipagoros, who's rebuilding the uh, Bowden right now, and how lucky are they to know him? You know, uh, let alone how lucky is the Bowden to have Maine Maritime behind it. Finn That's Sprague, right. uh, look forward so much to the Maine Boat Builders Show again. Well, we'll, and let's remember all of our friends. Yeah. Yes. And uh, you know, uh, one's gone, but the ones that are still here too. Uh, Steve and I were joking about getting older today. So next generation. Yeah. And, Finn, um, as you were saying, uh, Portland Yacht Service, is a lot going on there because business is good, right? We're, we're, uh, we're, we're packed full. We're working on uh, um, uh, both, uh, Blue Heron, which is uh, a uh, Sparkman Stevens number 25, uh, built in 1934. So we're doing a complete rebuild on that. And uh, people will be able to come and take a look at that at our new facility if they want to stop by and see us. We're going to do some parking up there in a, in a shuttle. Um, and so people are welcome to come through the uh, through the yard. Oh, nice. A little so bonus show, yeah. Nice. And, um, and then we, uh, uh, we also, I ought to also mention that the Marine Troubleshooting Competition is going to be Saturday morning. Huh. And, they're, and we're trying to promote uh, young kids coming into the industry. And nine teams from 15 different high schools and technical programs will compete. There's about $10,000 in scholarships for these young people. And they, they really represent the next generation of the leaders in the marine industry. And uh, that's being sponsored by uh, MMI, which is the Marine Mechanics Institute, and, and uh, UTI, which is the Universal Technical Institute. And uh, it's a timed competition. So we're going to give them um, some engines that don't work. What kind of trouble are we going oh, to throw out? We give them we give them problems and the team has to solve them. Nice. <laughs> and uh, they get scholarships to uh, to go to school and 
uh, what what happens is that these young people get enthusiastic about being in our industry, and we need we need the young people. Nice, so that's, yeah, right there. That's a big yeah. deal for me. And again, people, people, people is the theme this morning. Phineas that's Sprague, right. Portland Yacht Services. Uh, boy, good to talk to you this morning. Well, thank you guys for uh, putting me on. All right, thank and you. And I will see you on on the weekend. Well, I believe yes, we will. So. Look forward to it. All right. Thanks, Finn. Oh, we are uh, almost halfway through boat talk, and, and uh, we meander something fierce here because we don't write a script. <laughs> we just kind of show up and uh, talk about stuff we like and uh, are enthusiastic about. And, again, uh, our friend Steve Callahan is sitting here. And, uh, Steve, um, back in, uh, back in uh, what was it, the, oh, about 1980 or so, you built yourself a little boat. Yeah, actually, yeah, I designed it in the late 70s, 1978, I guess, and I think we launched it in 1980, 1979, 1980, something like that. It was called Napoleon Solo. Describe it. Oh, it was uh, six and a half meters, just over 21 feet, cold-molded boat um, back in, I guess... People were people were cold molding then. People were finding out who the Goujon brothers were and all that kind of thing. And, and was this one of the early epoxy? Uh, it was a epo- yeah. It was epoxy laminated veneers. Um, and cold molding. We should explain to to non uh, cold okay. molding people is is basically making a, a plywood boat out of uh, yeah. thin strips built up over a form. Right. You glued layers that go in different directions, and you you sense build yourself a, a round piece of plywood. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and in the old days. You know, back uh, in the Second World War and and whatnot, they they did hot molded boats like Luder 16s were made made hot molded with urea formaldehyde glue, but they had to be baked and 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 all of that. So it was uh, a much more uh, difficult process. But once they people invented epoxy, then it was we were able to cold mold the boat. Oh, glues so everything. It's like yeah, yeah. You can use almost anywhere, but. Um, so it was, it was kind of a, it was a breakthrough and I, I started my career actually building cold molded boats, helping backyard builders essentially back in the the seventies. Um, we usually got into projects a little bit bigger than they thought they were. <laughs> and, uh, so that's how I started and, uh, and also building multi-hulls and whatnot, which were often built of plywood and then cold molded after that in the early days. Well, we're still talking, uh, uh, boat design there. Is the thing sheathed at all with, with, uh, fiberglass cloth over the wood? Yes, it, it did have, cl- it had glass cloth on the yeah. outside, but, you know, frankly, looking back at it now, I mean, everybody was kind of guessing at what they were doing. Uh, boat, boat building, boat design is, Oh, a little bit of theory mixed with a lot of practice over time, and uh, we didn't have a lot of practice. Um, and I was a young man then, kind of all full of beans, and uh, probably should have built her a little bit differently than I did. Uh, I always think, uh, you know, that that I certainly was at least partially responsible for what happened to me, so I can't complain about it. But the boat, uh, again, uh, good in light airs, good in good in heavy air. Uh, you know, uh, you sailed it over to England and uh, with a friend, and yeah. and then uh, started back across that boat had more than a couple miles on it and yeah yeah pretty we, capable little 21 foot boat yeah it was it actually was a really good boat i, I loved uh, cruising on the boat because um uh back in the 80s uh, I, I i ended up dropping out of this race but uh spent quite a lot of time in spain portugal the canaries and everywhere i went i i found that it was like uh, a great calling card to have because i you know people would uh 
back then would spend evenings uh, strolling the keys and whatnot, the, the locals, and uh, they might, uh, I remember one time in particular, it was like the, a huge swan parked right in front of my, my teeny little boat, and people would actually walk around the swan, put distance between themselves, but I would wake up in the morning, there'd be a bunch of local fishermen waiting to talk to me. You sailed, in the, you sailed all the way over here mm. and that little thing, you know. Yeah, there's swans everywhere, and you can buy one for several million dollars. Yeah, all right. What you're doing is different. Yeah, it was, it was a very different era. There were a lot of young people like me, you know, out cruising around uh, on, uh, you know, boats that they had they had uh, bought for nothing and fixed up or built themselves <laughs> and whatnot. It was a much more, a a much more cro- yeah. common uh, practice. Yeah, we do have a phone call, so let's go to that right now. We have a phone call from, from Yo. Good morning, Yo. Good morning. This is Captain Yo. Hey, Yo. What's up? Well, I have a question for Steve, and I thought um, we should uh, hear some of his uh, particular thoughts on his special adventure. I've just finished the Dougal Robertson book, Survive the Savage, Savage Sea, in which uh, after their schooner was sunk by, a, by an attack by a killer whale, they spent several weeks in the Pacific on board a nine-foot fiberglass dinghy, six of them. And I'm wondering, Steve, if you could provide some kind of, um, some kind of comparison between being packed into a little boat with uh, six people and being utterly alone. Thank you guys wow. for putting on this program, <laughs> and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. It's a pretty good question. That was one of the things I was going to ask you this morning, the difference between surviving by yourself and, again, uh, with other people, yes. Well, um, every, every situation, obviously, is, is, is unique and um, has its own set of, of problems. Um, for me, I, I always looked at, it, uh, at everything as kind of having, having a, a yin-yang balance. It had its advantages and disadvantages. Um, and... So to be alone was certainly a struggle, um, but had I had anybody else with me, we wouldn't have had enough water. One of at least one of us would have died. Uh, but then again, you could have used him for bait. That's all exactly. good. Well, that's true too. And and uh, had I had somebody with me, maybe they would have seen a, a ship that uh, that passed me by without me seeing it uh, earlier on, or something like that. So it's hard to know. But I I have to remark about the the Robertsons in particular. They were um, quite an inspiration to me. And in fact, I carried a survival manual that Dougal Robertson and wrote after his adventure and uh, they were were really inspirational because they were incredibly creative um, in terms of making tools and how to adapt to live off the environment which of course is what uh, long-term ocean survivors uh, rely upon Um, so his his book survive the savage sea was uh, was very important to me and how one of his largest challenges was certainly being packed in this teeny little dinghy with um, a, a lot of people. Um, how they did that is really staggeringly beyond me. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I don't know how they did it. To not only keep everybody fed enough and watered enough and whatnot, but just psychologically how you can live in such a teeny, teeny yeah. little space with that many people is really unbelievable. Yeah. Um, Oh, uh, yeah, we'll come back to the people thing uh, when we discuss your other book, Capsized, in a little bit here. 
But, uh, again, you uh, did what we always talk about on Botox. You have to learn from the mistakes of other people. You had studied the Robertsons. You were a fan of survival uh, literature and stories, you know. And yeah. not only were you equipped, you, again, had had a little bit of that in your head already. Yeah. Uh, yeah, since huge. that time I was yeah. a kid, you know, just wandering along the beach, seeing stuff floating up, you know. I was like, whoa, what could I do with that? What could I do with that? Maybe someday, you know. We, everybody's, when, when we were young, you know, there's like the first, the, the Disney Swiss Family Robinson and came out and you know although it was an unbelievable fantasy you know i i, I don't know captures kids imagination i ran, i grew up running around in the woods and whatnot making do and with what you had at hand and pretty isolated environment so yeah. it's all and, good training for that and before we talk to gray uh, on the phone here for a minute um you went sailing for the first time at 14 or so and you ain't been right since right uh that's true actually it was a, a little earlier than yeah. that and yeah. i grew up with a pond in our backyard we started kind of whacking together boats when i was about eight or nine and or again never like never right after that no yeah. it was all downhill from there yeah. so let's uh, let's go to to gray now on the phone good morning gray welcome to boat talk hi guys uh uh alan's the the punny one i'm the pedantic one uh i got i got the definition of painter that you asked about at the beginning oh yes of um the origin is unclear. It apparently comes from the French. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a word, pentoir or pendoir, which means anything for hanging things on. And the first definition of painter in English is the rope or chain which the shank and flukes of the anchor when carried at the cat head are confined to the ship's side, also called shank painter. The second definition is a rope attached to, and that started in the in the 15th century, and by the 18th century it was a, also a rope attached to the bow of a boat for making it fast to a ship, or a stake or something. So uh, that's the Oxford English Dictionary definition, and uh, so it comes from the French, like many a good English word, uh, but uh, the English have sounder bottoms. And you know, uh, thanks for the show. Thank, thank you, Gray. Thank you, Gray. Uh, many a sailor's fondest hope is to uh, drown instead of hang, so there. Mm. Um, we are talking to Steve Callahan this morning, and uh, again, Steve uh, uh, had a little situation and then wrote a New York Times bestseller called Adrift about it. Steve, you, um, I was uh, rereading the book again. just blew me away. It's so well written. Um, for one thing, and not just the story, but you did an incredible job right, writing the book. Um, you're a, not only a good writer, but you bring up so many different ideas in the book, you know. And uh, But what surprised me rereading the book is, is that um, you hit something with the boat and had a little uh, scare before you hit something else and sank the boat. Oh, yeah. Well, you had yeah. a mini little uh, uh, run into something in the night, uh, boats filling with water episode before, the, the big one, didn't you? Yeah, we got to England. Uh, every, well, <laughs> there were lots of adventures on the way. I lost the mast on the way to Bermuda first time. Didn't hear that and, one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. uh, jury rigged it and sailed it back to Newport. Nice. How we learned, rigged yeah, it learning, and learning. whatnot. But, um, you know, I, I, I have this saying that uh, it's see Murphy's an optimist because not only – uh, will everything that can go wrong go wrong? But even the things that can't go wrong will figure out a way of going wrong. <laughs> and uh, and especially little little boat, you get kicked around a lot and whatnot. And um, I was young and and uh, not hugely experienced. I mean, I I'd, I'd done a, a, a number of trips, but um, it, certainly not as 
have, having the kind of experience I do now, and uh, I probably made a lot more mistakes then. Um, I, in any case, we got to England fine and set off from there and um, in a race initially, the, the Mini Transat, an early version of the Mini Transat race that went from Penzance down to the Caribbean. Uh, via the Canary Islands, and uh, it blew really hard in the Bay of Biscay. Um, in that particular race, I think about a, half the fleet or so ended up retiring. Uh, several boats were lost entirely, and I had uh, in the Bay of Biscay smashing across a lot of really big waves. It's pretty nasty there. Um, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night, and there was water in the boat, and there was a fracture forward and the top sides forward um, just underneath the shear. So um, mm. I, water was squirting in there. High up, I, though. That was good. That was high. Yeah, it was high yeah. up. But, uh, you know, I got it into Spain and um, and retired from the race and fixed the boat up there and then continued on my way. But, yeah. you know, there's a lot of stuff to hit in, in the ocean and not to uh. mention uh, – uh, you know, just falling off of waves and whatnot. We got knocked down past, way past 90 degrees. I don't know how far because there was there was green water over the the, the hatch on the way over, um, which was we just were up on a wave and and fell into a hole basically. The oh, several fell. tons of boat falls on several tons of water. And yeah, down. Yeah, you know, six, seven, eight, ten feet. You don't know. A lot of you force know, involved. It's, it's a lot Huge, of force. Yeah. You know, everybody. You know, I went flying, and everything in the boat went flying. Yeah. And, um So things happen out there. Now you've uh, fixed the boat. You're um, uh, leaving. Uh, was the Azores or Canary Islands? I'm not sure. Canaries. But Canaries. Yeah. yeah. And. Um, you are headed to Caribbean by yourself. You've got a boat that you can sit inside and steer the thing and, right. and sail it and make a cup of tea all at the same time and, oh, yeah, and navigate yeah. and read yeah. a book and um, pretty cool setup. So, uh, again, you are uh, charging alone by yourself, which freaks me out as a delivery sailor to have nobody awake yeah. <laughs> driving the boat. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I've, it kind of freaks me out sometimes, too. You know, you're sailing along. But I've sailed, uh, you know, like I say, I sail a lot of multi-hulls, too, which are going, you know, you might be going 15, 18 knots mm. or something or other in the middle of the night. And I don't care whether you can see it or not. <laughs> you know, in a way, there's not much. If something shows up, it's probably going to show up pretty close to the boat. In fact, in 79, I hit a sperm whale in the Gulf Stream, and I was steering it. It was the middle of the day, but the Gulf Stream was really choppy. And... It's, by the time I saw the whale, we were right on top of it. There was just no way to see it beforehand, and we smacked into the whale, and it wasn't very happy about it. And, but um, wow, did the kind of Moby Dick thing, you know, writhed around and came up astern and and started charging at the boat. They're and, known as the fighting whale. They get pissed. Well, yeah, yeah, I figure they're like people. You know, you go up and suddenly slug somebody on the street, and some yeah. people will just sit there shocked, and other people might turn around and huh. hit you back. So. So but anyway, one fun. night off the Canaries, you're uh, asleep in your bunk, basically. Yeah. And a uh, big thunk, uh, like a car crash. It's it's amazingly loud when you hit something in a boat. And uh, I don't know that, but I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, there's war pouring in everywhere. Would you uh, pick up the tail, perhaps? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I, everything was fine, actually. I was, you know, the weather was a little harsh, but it wasn't anything horrendous. Uh, maybe waves... 10 feet, maybe 8, 10 feet, something like that. And uh, and big bang, like you say, a lot of water rushing in the boat. I knew the boat was kind of doomed immediately. And so I uh, got up and tried to get my gear loose from inside. I had a ditch kit and um, 
things were happening just too fast, and I thought the boat was going to go down before I had a chance to get out. So I got up on the deck, got my life raft inflated, but um, then the boat stabilized. They had watertight compartments in it, and um, the the bow of the boat was totally underwater. The stern was just up a bit, and at least between waves, all the waves were sweeping right over it. But that gave me a chance to get back aboard and grab stuff and. Uh, some pretty essential equipment, my ditch kit, which had a spear gun and more water makers and whatnot, in it, and um, then basically drifted off and next stop, the Caribbean, with the, with the wind and the waves. Yeah, and sounds easy, right? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you took, uh, you were prepared, you had a ditch bag, you, you were prepared for this, and again, you took chances to go back and retrieve that. Yeah, I, I knew I knew about where I was. I was pretty much dead smack in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. I was 800 miles or so west of the Canary yeah. Islands. So I had close to 2,000 miles before I'd hit the Caribbean. Uh, it would have been nice to be able to Winds get swept you. down to the Cabo Verdes, which were about 800 miles away. But, you know, that's one of those yin-yang things where uh, at least I was in the steady trades and pretty uh, relatively benign conditions, especially compared to the North Atlantic where I would have frozen to death um so you know you just go off and you take it for what it is reality is what it is and you try to accept accept it and find solutions to the problems and was uh speaking to our friend uh captain sonny perkins this morning uh one of my great uh moments with people is i brought sonny to a, a party one time and you were standing there and walked in i said sonny steve steve sonny you've both done a life raft stock yeah and uh Sonny uh, reminds me, uh, among other things, that um, nobody expects to stay in a life raft very long. No. Well, generally, uh, I mean, there's kind of a little bit of a joke in the middle of a drift. I remember reading someplace in the literature or whatever that the, the, the raft was uh, was warranted for 40 days of use, which after 40 <laughs> days is a little wake-up call. Going, but it did well. Um, Most no, people were picked up in a day or two. Yeah, yeah, basically, well, yeah. You, you know— you, for uh, a, a raft to be uh, certified, you're given uh, a luxurious four square feet per person, which means if you get six people in a six-person raft, which is what I had, um, you're literally on top of one another. It'd be very difficult living there any length of time. Um, so, yeah, most people are picked up 24, 36 hours. If it's beyond that, you know, your chances You've got flares. There are ships. Down. You don't necessarily have to sail to the Caribbean, but, again, the wind's behind you, and that's what ended up happening. Yeah, and I had, a, I had a whole arsenal of flares. I had an EPIRB, but at that time, it was about six months or so before EPIRBs were being uh, monitored by satellite as well as, oh, as, yeah. as aircraft so that didn't help me it helped uh, walter green uh, a, a colleague and friend down in in southern maine the following fall he got into trouble on a trimaran and was the first as far, i understand it the first uh, uh survivor is being picked up by uh epirbs signaling satellite so that was a big sea change yeah. in, in survival um at the time and it's become more idiot resistant, but again, it's not still for everybody. Doesn't work all the time. I, you know, I worked. At, I was an editor at Cruising World for four years. We got all kinds of stories about you know ma uh, malfunctioning epurbs, epurbs full of water and whatnot. So things uh, happen. Talking about personal AIS beacon, uh, beacon right. uh, automatic uh, position indicator, basically. Uh, Finn Sprague was talking about. Steve, you had a uh, spear gun. You you. Um, uh, also had a, a little ecosystem that traveled with you, uh, some fish that, that uh, traveled with your raft, basically, right. which you harvested. At one point, 
you have speared a Dorado fish, which is, uh, you know, small old dolphins, what everybody mm-hmm. hopes a mahi-mahi, what everybody hopes to catch if they're sport fishing. Yeah. And, uh, again, you are going to be so happy to have some eyes and some organs and some, uh, <laughs> some flesh to... Uh, but while this fish is uh, writhing on your spear, the spear punctures the bottom tube of your raft. Yeah, I broke the... Well, they're pretty big, and I had, I had a spear gun that I had bought in the Canaries, just a little teeny, teeny little thing, um, almost a toy. Plastic, something like yeah. Oh, the handle was plastic. It had a little aluminum shaft on it, but it, all plastic fittings on the ends. And mm-hmm. the, the Mai Mai Dorado, pretty powerful fish, and they were constantly... Given the spear gun problems, the strap disappeared that powered the spear, so I tied it together and was just jabbing the fish. And then at one point, they broke broke the shaft, basically, in half, the oh. aluminum shaft. And you're jury-rigging your ass so off pieces you know, of string and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so anyway, it put, it, hit a, it put a hole in the bottom tube, and that was a real problem. Um, a four-inch hole just in a, the thing that's holding you up in the ocean. It's not a small problem at all. No, it, and especially because of the nature of, uh, of an inflatable. Once the bottom tube was deflated, then uh, the pressure of the water underneath the, the raft pushes the the um the shape of the raft up upwards and so i'm it's like walking in rubber quicksand inside and the floor no longer supports you yeah yeah and you have a lot less freeboard whereas in a raft with me normally i probably have close to a foot of freeboard that went down to about three inches also makes your legs uh, better targets for sharks and All so that. on but yeah, this it, was tear, ni- it was a nightmare really. steve this i'm a boat builder man this tears underwater yeah you fixed it yeah, I could pull up the I could pull it up so I could just kind of see the hole and I started pushing plugs in and trying to wrap it up and none of that stuff really worked as soon as I I um, blew up the tube. It would stretch the fabric out, stretch the, the mouth of the hole out, and there's air in the thing. There's out. life in there. There goes the bubbles, bubbles, and, and yeah. uh, man. But you keep trying. Yeah, and well, I didn't have much. Of, I didn't have much of a choice, really. I, 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 it really, it brought me right to the edge, though. At the end, I, it just, I could get it uh, patched to fix, for, you know, to to last for minutes to hours, maybe, and then it would all blow up on me and. I finally lay down, and it was like that was that was the end. I was just I was totally beaten. Um, had lots of salt water sores and all this other stuff, but it basically it was exhaustion. And but I forced myself to go back through all the gear that I had on board, and the answer ended up being a handle to a fork, which I God knows I had in my for what reason I had in my ditch kit, but. I was able to break that off and put a pin down through the whole thing, and that gave me something secure to lash around. It didn't matter how kind much of pressure. A bone through the nose. A bone lashing. through the nose, exactly. Yeah. And so lashing around that, it didn't matter how much pressure was in the the bottom tube. It couldn't be the lashings couldn't be forced off, and that was it. And if you I just had somebody smile oh, like man. you guys, no, with I wouldn't me. have come up with that. Steve, trust me, I wouldn't have come up with that. Said, Why didn't I think of this like no, ten no, days no. ago? But. I would have been using your water. Any chance you could read a little bit there? Uh, well, I might be able to. I don't have my glasses with me. I've so flagged a piece patient. from, I uh, believe it's like day 63 or so out of 76. That's right, April yeah. 8th, day 63. Um, now that I have fresh fish, I won't have to work as hard for the next couple of days. It's a moment's respite, though I know I will never be able to rest until the voyage ends. It's almost unbelievable to think how much time I had to spare in the old days, back before my equipment was failing, regu- failing regularly, and before 
sorry, I really, my eyes are a little bit. Uh, and before I became half starved, now each job takes longer and longer to accomplish. I continually wonder how much more a body can take. I don't consider suicide, not now, after all I've come through, but I can understand how others might see it as a reasonable option in, in these circumstances. For me, it's always easier to struggle on, to give myself courage. I tell myself that my hell could be worse, that it might get worse, and I must prepare for that. My body is certain to deteriorate further. I, I tell myself that I can handle it. Compared to what others have been through, I'm fortunate. I tell myself these things over and over, building up fortitude, but parts of my body feel as if they're in flames. The fire from the sores in my back, butt, and legs shriek upward, and the flames burst forth into my skull. In a moment, my spirit is in ashes and tears well in my eyes. They're not enough to even dampen the conflagration. Yeah, I was in a lot of pain at that point. That's after I hold the raft. I had hundreds of these very irritating saltwater sores, which are little open ulcers in the, in the, on the skin, and I'm sitting in a very salt-encrusted environment, so it was pretty painful. But it's time. easier to keep trying. A lot of people quit. Quitters die. That's survival uh, fact of life right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there are reasons for, you know, I don't... One thing I, I, I emphasize uh, often is that, uh, you know, people make their own choices and there's no, there's no right or wrong way. Uh, for some people, it may be the, the logical choice. I, don't, I, really can't, I really can't put myself in, mm. in those shoes. Uh, for me, it was always easier to keep going. Like I said, I was, I was 30 years old and I'd screwed up a lot of things in my life and I had a reason to get back. Um, I needed to I needed to fix my life up a lot. There you go. We uh, are talking to Steve Callahan, uh, survivor, uh, wrote adrift, uh, also capsized, and uh, boy, we are going through Botox so fast this morning. We're running out of time to uh, talk about the movies and stuff too. But we got to finish this story. You uh, did sail to the Caribbean, and you kept track of your position. You made a sextant out of pencils. You were an above average life raft man, <laughs> and. Uh, the super steely eye life raft man. The, the <laughs> Superman, Superman. They called John uh, Marie Glant where you landed there. Um, so anyway, super uh, fisherman. They said. Which yeah. I, usually I'm a horrible fisherman. I don't yeah. catch much at sea, but I but, was I was lucky. Yeah, everything that floats in the ocean is an island. It develops an ecology, and long-term survivors yeah. learn to live off of that ecology. Which uh, and I was very fortunate. I had all these, you know, fish that traveled with you. Yeah, I learned and, how to catch them. You are coming up to the side. You wake up one morning, and there are green mountains in front of you, and you are kind of a little happy, okay? And But we have not solved the problem yet. The problem could get worse. We have to come ashore. Might have to cross coral reef in a uh, shredded dinghy and uh, with a shredded person. I mean, we're not safe at all yet. And an unusual thing happened that morning. Um, you had a little ecosystem traveling with you. Those fish had birds flying over them. That's right. And some local boys who didn't ever fish out that way saw the birds and came looking to see what was happening, and they exactly found right. you. That's right. Which kind of puzzled them, didn't it? Uh, yeah, they didn't. I think they, they saw us see all kinds of um, Europeans coming across in strange craft and trying to do records and whatnot. There was some Englishman who came across in a modified barrel at some point, so <laughs> they didn't know what to make of me. Uh, but, yeah, the ecosystem, actually, a drift is, you know, I'm kind of the clumsy observer, uh, human observer of the, the environment. The, the real star of the show in a drift is the, is, is the Dorado. And, oh, I agree. And, and the environment. They, 
the the environment um, threatened me, of course, almost killed me. Um, the, but uh, the Dredo in particular, they were my companions. Um, I got to know many of them individually. Um, I uh, they they fed me and almost killed me, and in the end, they they brought my salvation. That was it. Well, Steve, you um, again didn't uh, decompress. In the usual survivor way, you didn't jump on their boat and run back into the harbor. You stayed in your life raft and told those fellas to catch the fish who were your friends and, and your ecosystem there. They had one of the best days fishing ever, I think, didn't they? Well, they, they told me that. That was the best. They were pretty happy because they got a lot of great duration. Well, you just bit... bobbed around in your raft well, off to they the were, side. They were right there. Man. And I had... You know, I had stocked carefully stocked story. water yeah. and and stuff, and I I, I was again. Dying to you get some landed fruit, with but... fish and water in the bank. You were again a little high end on the survival chart. So. I was lucky. Yeah. I was very lucky. Um, wrote the book. Um, uh, wrote another book called uh, oh, uh, Capsized, mm -hmm. which Yo asked about the difference of having more people on on the craft. This was a catamaran that tipped over in the South Pacific. The fellas survived for, what, 117 days? 119 like? days upside down. But they ended up hating each other. Well, I don't know. Actually, I thought that the, was the best part. The, they didn't know each other beforehand, except two, two of the guys knew each other. And there was huge amounts of friction uh, because of that uh, early on. But eventually, they came together as a successful survival team. Yeah. Uh, but it was a uh, it was a huge struggle. People, yeah, people have more problems. Um you got to consult on the. We got to throw this in real quick. You got to consult on a couple of Hollywood movies, The right. Life of Pi, and just recently, uh, that was directed by Ang Lee. Now, I guess a good buddy of yours, and and uh, the last one was uh, just recently released, In the Heart of the Sea, based on the uh, tragedy of the whale ship Essex, the book by Nathaniel Philbrick. Yeah, fantastic book, by the way. Uh, anybody interested in maritime history, it's it's a it's a wonderful book. Directed by uh, Opie Howard Cunningham, uh, Ron right. Howard. There, you that's know, right. um, you hanging out in some. That's good work if you can get it. I would yeah, take it. Yeah, yeah, it's been fun. I mean, I think it's a pretty limited gig to be a survival marine <laughs> consultant well. in the movie business, but but I've 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 really enjoyed working where they're gonna uh, find people with the resume you know yeah so earning those credentials is pretty hard i don't think i'd want to go for it right um making a movie uh, again we can talk about that for a long time it takes a lot of people it's uh, remarkably complicated isn't it yes yeah yeah it's a huge undertaking yeah. how books ever get put together is beyond me how movies get made is really beyond me um and again with the theme i guess it's all about people and uh right. yeah so so happy to talk to Steve Callahan this morning. We've run out of talk on Boat Talk, just plain uh, not enough of it. Went fast. It was fun. Uh, and thank you so much for being here this hey, morning, thanks Steve. thanks for having me, guys. Thanks to Amy down in the engine room. This is uh, Stay tuned for Rich Hillsinger coming up next uh, with On the Wing here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor, and on the web at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Gamble & Hunter 